Hello, and welcome to Popular Podagogy. I am your host, Nathan Cheney. This podcast is brought to you by Queen's University Faculty of Education. We have a very special podcast today uh, on the eve of the 50th anniversary uh, anniversary of the Queen's University Faculty of Education. Um, we're fortunate to be joined by uh, the Dean of the Faculty of Education at Queen's University, University uh, Dr. Rebecca Luce Kapler, and the Dean of the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary, Dr. Dennis Samara. Dennis, Rebecca, how are you doing today? We're well, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Yeah, looking forward to tomorrow. I bet you are. So speaking of tomorrow, um, it's very exciting because this year marks the 50 years of teaching excellence at the Queen's Faculty of Education. Uh, so as part of our celebrations, the faculty is hosting a conference uh, on the topic of teachers as change leaders. So Rebecca, can you just tell us a little bit about how you decided on this theme? Yeah, when we decided that we wanted to celebrate our 50th anniversary, I wanted it to really focus on our, you know, our prime work in caring, which is about teachers and teaching and education. And I was talking to Dennis in one of our phone calls, and I said, "Well, this is happening, and I, you know, I want, I want a really important idea to to center what we're doing." And he said, "You know, I've been thinking about how teachers are leading change in various areas, and we talked a bit more about the impact of teachers on kids and." And society, and out of that, I came and and, and uh, said, "Well, you know what? Why don't we have the theme of teachers as change leaders? You come as a keynote, and then everything else fell mm -hmm. into place." So, Dennis, tomorrow you're going to be giving the keynote, as Rebecca just said. So, as a researcher, teacher, and dean, um, this theme obviously relates to all aspects of your work. So, how can you tell us a little bit about how your keynote? Uh, fits into this important theme? Well, yes, I think that when most people hear that any adult is a leader of change, they have a picture of what that is. You know, and usually it's a pretty big kind of act, you know, a political act, marching in the streets, um, writing to the newspaper, and indeed it could be all those things. But when I reflect back, and um, in my talk I'll be discussing the more subtle ways in which teachers um, you know, make profound changes every day in the classroom, changes to curriculum to adapt it in ways that are more suitable for contexts and for young people, changes to stories. You know, what story of identity do you have or did you have when you come into a classroom? And is that um, story valued? Is it a more marginal one? Is it a mainstream one? And how does that impact the way you experience learning in the classroom? How do teachers, in actually very subtle ways, make profound changes that often aren't noticed, except by the person, usually in retrospect, um, as they advance into their adulthood? So that's the topic. I'll be talking about, uh, you know, the normative functions of schooling, uh, where it came from, um, how it's still done, um, advances we might have made, but probably some of the more subtle problematics that we have within the context of teaching that require teachers to be critically aware of, of their role as change, change agents. That actually what, is what the job is. 
Yeah, and one of the things that, uh, just to kind of go off of that a little bit, that I find really interesting is is the idea that um, leaders don't necessarily have to be those people who are standing up and giving a big speech and doing yeah. something unique. And, and this is something that I've had a conversation with a lot of people about because uh, one of the goals of teaching is to build leadership skills in, amongst your students as well. And mm-hmm. they always look at your students and they say, you know, well, that person's so quiet, how can they be a leader? And it's not necessarily about being the person that's the loudest in the room. It's about doing the actions that are are meant to be there. And I think that's something that is really important about this topic as well. Well, and and just to build on that a little bit, Nathan, I think when I was teaching in uh, school, one of the ways I knew I was being successful is if I could leave the room for 15 minutes and I'd come back and the kids were all doing learning of some kind you know isn't that an amazing feeling when it happens that way that's an amazing feeling and I feel the same way about being a a leader of a faculty of education my goal is to pretty much stay in the background and give people the space to do what they need to do and what they hope to do to me that's leadership yeah and, and you know I'll follow up on that I think it I'm pretty sure I'm trying to remember what I actually put in my title uh, which I won't reveal today, but <laughs> I'd rather focus on the act, the action and the activity than categorizing somebody as a leader. So I'm pretty sure in the talk it has the, the phrase, teachers leading change. And there is a difference, mm-hmm. right? Um, what we believe, certainly at the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary, where I'm dean, and I know what Rebecca believes, is the teacher's primary role and, you know, people who lead faculty's primary role is to create conditions for other people to be empowered. Like, we don't empower anybody directly. Right. I don't give that to you. I create conditions where you're, you're able to find a way to achieve it for yourself in the way that you find meaningful. And right. if we do that successfully, it's exactly what Rebecca has said. We're no longer required. You know, we can fall away from that. And we need to. You have to be able to leave knowing that you have the capability, the ability, and the confidence to do things that we would never have imagined for you. Right. And that's something that can go even outside the field of education as well, is it's creating an environment and creating uh, an ecosystem where people can thrive um, and and enabling them to have that opportunity to empower themselves and and giving them that. So uh, it's, it's... evident that that we see that at the Faculty of Education at Queen's, and I'm sure that your students would say the same at the Workland School. Well, everywhere. So everywhere I go, I talk about, now I'll do it very briefly. Of course. How it came to be that we became the Workland School of Education. You know, I met David Workland, a very successful entrepreneur in Calgary a number of years ago, and at a lunch meeting in a food court, you know, I said, well, David, how is it possible that someone who did not finish grade nine from northern Alberta, from Valley View, Alberta, could have achieved so much in business, been so successful. And he said, you know what? I made a lot of mistakes. And early on, I was the boss who had to know everything, who told people exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't do it, I fired them. And he said, guess what? My business has failed. And, you know, it's a longer story than this. But eventually we came to the point where he said, yeah, I've learned. You hire really good people. And you create the conditions for them to learn how to do the job in new ways. And you listen. And you do it. 
And when you do that, you have the most amazing businesses because you've empowered them to build your business for you. Yeah. All you have to do is keep on creating those conditions. I said, well, David, that's good teaching. That's what it is. Yeah. So how was it that a business person, you know, gave us $25 million to name the School of Education? Not about the money at all. It's about the value. The idea of empowering other people to achieve in ways that you could or that they could never have predicted. That works in teacher education, engineering education, medical education, arts, science, business, everywhere. It's what we hope for our children, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a good lesson for anyone to keep in mind, whether you're running a school, whether you're running a university, whether you're running a small business in, exactly. in your own hometown. So it's, it's but a it nice... it starts in the classroom, though, right? Absolutely. I think if those kids leave, young people, the classroom, not having had that experience, if they leave feeling, well, I wasn't able to achieve that on that exam, or I'm not as good as Nathan was in math and science, that's not good. No. Right? Well, it's definitely not good if you're not as good as I was in math and science, but okay, well, that's another well, subject that's, for yeah, another we day. We don't have to know everything. <laughs> um, so in in the idea about uh, kind of reflecting uh, and going back a little bit for the history between the two of you, you both did your PhDs at the University of Alberta. Um, so can you tell us about how the concept of teachers as change leaders um, influenced the way that you view education? Well, I think I, I think this idea of teachers as change leaders wasn't wasn't really there as ex the way you expressed it. Right. But both Dennis and I were in secondary education at the University of Alberta. They're departmentalized, like like we're not. And that department had a long history that started with Ted Aoki, who was a chair who, who, who led the department into new ways of thinking about teaching and learning. And he had been, he had been uh, um, uh, teaching in Tabor, Alberta, in a school. And he took those lessons of teaching where he realized what's important is you have to see who's in front of you, what they're doing, who they are, how they engage, not just how they do the workbook. So he really brought phenomenology to that department and infused that department with the importance of that. And not only the phenomenological piece, but also the hermeneutic, interpreting what you see, how you read situations. And everybody in that department in some frame or other did think that and do that kind of work do you want to pick up well yeah and I'd forgotten of course Ted was from Tabor I'd never taken a class from him but I've been almost everywhere he's been mm -hmm. so his parents and he were in the lower mainland um, post-world war ii you know the internment mm -hmm. where the Japanese Canadians were removed from the lower mainland their land was taken from them they were sent to different places. Lethbridge, Alberta, where I was born, had an internment camp mm -hmm. for Japanese Canadians. New Denver, B.C. had another one. That's where Ted went with his parents. And they worked the sugar beet fields later around that area. He ended up finishing a teacher education degree. He did teach in Tabor. He did teach in Lethbridge at the high school across the street from me. He did go to UBC. Yeah. and started a whole curriculum department focused on curriculum isn't the document. 
curriculum are all the relations the people have, their history, their context, their language, their culture, all of it. Well, nobody was thinking about curriculum that way. When he had the opportunity to be department head, you know, he did what all good leaders do. He had a vision for the future of education and how we should change our conception of what curriculum is, what teaching is. And he hired a lot of people, you know, including Max Van Manen, who brought phenomenology to Canada right. and said, we will be the place that has a more interpretive, cultural, historical understanding of curriculum and teaching. You know, more of a path laid while walking. Yeah. You know, the course, not the course of studies, but the running of the course. Right. Very, very different. So we, that, that was where we did our PhD. And I think you leave those experiences um, conceptually understanding the possibilities in education in very different ways. I remember thinking when I first started in that department, started my graduate work there, I thought I finally have found a place where people think about teaching the way I think about teaching. Yeah. I was tired of the instrumentalist, you know, here's your curriculum document, check off, check these objectives off as you do them, because it was so much more about the relationality in the classroom between students, between the students and me, between us and, and the school. And that's where the real learning happens. It's yeah. not what's in that curriculum document. Yeah. Well, it is the thing, you know, I say ever since then, we're trying to close the gap between education and schooling. And they are two different things. Right? Whoever thought it would be a good idea? It's the industrial model applied to um, literally preparing people for a particular way of being in the world. Why is it a good idea to divide people into age group categories? Makes no sense. <laughs> or to divide knowledge up into the subjects we have. Right. Makes no sense, really. Not at all. We wouldn't do it that way anywhere else. Yeah. And nowhere else do we do that, except still in most schools. Yeah. Still a lot of work to be done, you know, to rethink what education is and should be, how that relates to what happens in school. Yeah. We were just talking yesterday about our, our career as we were thinking about doing this and how things have come some distance since we started teaching but there's so much farther to go and how when you're looking at something as culturally entrenched as school how difficult that is to even move the needle a little bit on those things but if we really care about kids if we really care about our future we, we have to we have to keep working towards that goal yeah. Well, and, and I think, I, I mean, just going back to the idea of, of the relationships and the relations and how that goes back into school. And you think about even from when I was in school, um, the differences that I see now in the education system. And it wasn't necessarily one big monumental change. It was little things that teachers started to learn and do as they went along. And yeah. and that's, I, I think, what is an important part of this topic is finding the things that teachers can do to make things special for their students. Right. And um, I think that that is, is something that clearly comes out in that story there. And, and going back to, it's not just teachers, right? Right. So young people, even children, can make profound changes mm -hmm. to school and right. curriculum. They do. They can be very activist. And, and it's when two things meet, right? All social movements. You know, start when people who are marginalized, and that for sure is children and young people in schools, yeah. not taken seriously, not treated as complete human beings. When they start to mobilize, which they now do on social media, one of our mm -hmm. colleagues 
um, Linda Laidlaw at the University of Alberta has children and she studies subversive uses of digital technology by children. She told me her daughter's first experiment when she wanted to know the power of social media when she was in grade five, somehow she organized digitally all the kids in the school to stand up at a certain time and turn backwards in the classroom. And guess what? They all did it. At that moment, she knew that she had some kind of power, you know, a way to get attention, a way to um, possibly um, motivate some change in, in the schooling context. So it's both. It's not just teachers. You know, young people are very active in thinking about the ways in which schooling still might not be a place where they can maximize their own idea of the future. Right. Do you think that the school environment, just as a thought to that, do you think that the school environment is uh, related to setting up those students and the power that they now have? Um, be because I, when I was teaching, I saw that a lot more as well, is that students felt more empowered in class to make decisions about what they wanted to do. And I think with constructivist ed education and the rise of that and social constructivism, um, in which we're allowing students to kind of choose a little bit more about what they want to learn about, mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like we're giving some power to that. Well, I, I mean, I think I think what really does make that change where people feel empowered, <clears throat> it's not so much constructivism. It might, you know, that might lead to it, but I think it's more children and, and young people now are are noticing the impact that they can have and it's 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 not about school it's about their own social connections and their thinking about what's going on in the world so if you think about all the students that walked out of secondary school a few weeks ago mm -hmm. to protest the Ford government uh, rolling back what everyone calls the sex ed curriculum right uh, incorrectly but um, <laughs> It, it was a very powerful moment for those students to realize that they could make a difference by doing that. Yeah. So, and you know, in this time of the Me Too movement and things, I think we're seeing groups that have typically not thought they had power or not thought they had the mobilization to change are are gaining that, are hopeful in doing that. And and so I think in schools over the next few years, my hope is that that we'll see more of that. Yeah. I mean, public education is so fraught, you know. Um, my last doctoral student, Patrick Rubel, who just finished a dissertation um, from um, um, Whitehorse, he was a former minister of education years ago, did his doctoral work with us. He interviewed a number of former minister of ministers of education right across Canada on their experience of being the minister responsible for education. Long story short, the conclusion is, you know, it is fraught. It's where so much anxiety um, lies about the future, about young people, about, you know, what knowledge is dangerous and what isn't. It's all there. So when you've got that kind of a situation, teachers actually have a limited amount of power Right. to change that directly in the classroom. Let's be honest. There are some things that simply cannot be done. Right. You know, we know that. That's why my argument is a lot of subtle, appropriate changes, empowering young people to think more broadly, giving them the opportunity, 
you know, through the work they do to imagine differently the way things are. Not all of it has to become represented or visible. You know, we still have the mind that can do a lot of work. And then we see what can happen. So there's no doubt in my mind, there is no teacher that told those young people to walk out. No. However, something about their education right. created the conditions for them to feel they could do that. Yeah. And that's the difference, right? Yeah. Um, so we're just going to transition here a little bit and go back to the idea of the conference. Um, so the 50th anniversary conference reflects on the past through the lens of teachers as change leaders. Um, and we're going to have a panelist representing each decade from the 70s to the present. So is there a decade that really stands out to you as pivotal when thinking about teachers as change leaders? I, I would say uh, that for for both of us, we, we did talk about that a little bit. I, I think it was the 80s. Mm -hmm. In Alberta. In Alberta. So this is an Alberta experience. I, I'm not sure if it, it would you know be true across <coughs> the country. But the late 70s and early 80s were a time when teachers had a tremendous amount of input and autonomy and and were being asked to guide the curriculum they were being consulted by the ministries of education there were not there was no standardized testing to speak of yet and, and there was there was a lot of uh, professionalism we felt like professionals we made decisions it was the best time of my teaching career and then things started to change. And in Alberta, I would say it's when Ralph Klein came in, maybe. I, or even a, before a that. A whole bunch of things, right? Yeah. And we started to see, all of a sudden, standardized testing was coming, but they weren't calling it that. They were saying, we're just checking to see how how the curriculum's being um, you know, enacted in the classroom. Right. It won't really count. won't count. Yeah. Uh, and, and then... You know, there were curriculum changes that were happening that just kind of happened, you know. Mm -hmm. So slowly those things started to close in a bit. Well, basically, I agree with Rebecca, and that's when I taught all through the 80s. It was fantastic. You know, I taught in a rural school division. Teachers were trusted. Let's put it that way. Yeah. We were trusted to teach the curriculum. It was a very bare bones built on a few principles, values, a number of concepts, and you taught it in context. It, it differed. There was no standardized testing. Right. You know, the mark I gave the students is the grade they got at the end of the year. No interference from government or from anywhere. No, try, no attempt to standardize. I think that's very important. Well, how did this all happen? In Alberta, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, we had some of the most progressive curriculum in the world. A number of the school leaders and people working in ministry did their PhDs at the Chicago School of John Dewey. If you look back at those documents, it is amazing. Right. Amazing. They had courses called Enterprise. Yeah. The curriculum was very small. Basically, the instructions to teachers were create conditions for learning. Right. That was it. Uh -huh. And they did it. And then the 50s happened with Sputnik and the science, their whole anxiety about are we sciencey enough? Are we going to keep up with the Soviets and so on? Um, you know, we started to see the beginning of that then. And here we are today, where I would say our biggest problem is we do not trust teachers. We don't. You know, we make sure that we, at the end of the year, test all those students to ensure they've learned what they're supposed to learn and be who they're supposed to be. You know, this has to be the revolution. You know, teachers have to mobilize and get that control back and say, look, we are more than professionals. You know, we understand how relationships work. 
we have a vision for um, how young people can be empowered to do all kinds of things that we never could have imagined. But you have to give us some degrees of freedom. It has to be true that in that classroom with those students, I need to be able to make some judgments and some changes about what you need and what you need that might be different from what Rebecca needs. And at the end of the term, I don't want all of that work, which is diversity work, right. really, to be ruined by all of us having to fall, to, to be funneled through the same little silo. Right. Well, you know, years ago, Michael Apple wrote about the de-skilling of teachers. Yeah. And that, that word has stayed with me so strongly yeah. because I've seen it grow and grow and grow. That that more and more professional judgment has been taken away from teachers. Right. And and that's that's sad. That's very sad. And it's harmful to the education system. I think we're reaching a point, though, at least I see it in Ontario, where teachers are starting to push back. And, and I, th I think the whole thing around the sex ed curriculum was a good, good indication of that, where they're realizing how the reach of the government is getting right into the, the very heart of what they care about and what they do. So I, I hope, you know, sometimes when bad things happen in, in a province or in a school district, it helps mobilize people to realize their situation, that what was transparent becomes really you know, obvious to them, and then they begin to push back. Yeah, they wake up. Mm -hmm. They wake up. In Alberta, it always goes back to, you know, whenever there seems to be an economic or a social problem, let's get back to the basics in math. If only, if only those elementary school teachers, by the way, most of them are still women, so if only those women would teach math better, to those kids, we would have a better economy. I know that seems like a bit of a stretch, but really, that's, the that's actually what's going on. Mm -hmm. There's no research whatsoever anywhere that would support going back to that arcane way of teaching mathematics. Right. However, it's very easy for um, politicians to pick up on social anxiety around achievement and make that the issue. Well, and that's one of the conversations that we've we've had previously with other guests on this podcast is the idea of everyone has an opinion and everyone has gone to school. Yeah. And so when we're talking about changes in education and changes in school, and even if it's supported by research, it's very difficult to get the larger population on board with that because they've had an experience with school and, right. and it's a different if it's a different experience than what they had then it makes it more difficult to speak and i think that's a, a little bit of what that speaks to here with with the changes in government and yeah. and government entering into the well continuing to enter into well, the they education don't, they field. don't do it with medicine and right. why is that well because the stakes are pretty high and immediate you know we need medical practitioners and professionals to be experts so that we survive our heart attack or you know whatever um, but there's also been a problem, I think, in education. Right. Right. We have not, until quite recently, been very clear about the language we're using to describe phenomena. We've not really positioned ourselves to be experts in learning. You know, we, we're teachers, that's our field of expertise, right? <laughs> you know, human development and learning. And we have to know the research, the current research in those areas, so that when challenged or asked, I don't rely just on my experience or opinion. Mm -hmm. No, my experience and my opinion um, rest with a body of research that is current and relevant, not something from 30 or 40 years ago. So we have some work to do in education in order to earn the trust of the community 
and of government to to be able to respond to those challenges to you know we think we should have a back to the basics curriculum in math or we think we should change the whatever sex ed the sex ed you know it cannot just be well you're wrong or we know that we're right there has to be some evidence right that we're using um so the last question touched a little bit and we're starting to get into it now uh on the past uh of education um but at the conference there's also going to be a panel that discusses the future of education and specifically looking at themes of gender uh indigeneity at-risk youth international education diversity and equity, digitalization, and technology. Uh, I know that's a lot, but uh, from your perspective as university administrators, uh, what do you see as the challenges and opportunities for teachers, teacher education, and education education research um, looking to the future of education? Well, you know, yeah, there's a lot there, but a couple of things. I would say that we have not an opportunity, but a responsibility Mm-hmm. in the context of teacher education to ensure that we are closing that gap between schooling and education. So what are we doing, you know, in-house within the context of our work to literally change the subject and the topic and the tone and the opportunities for people to succeed within teacher education? So who gets in? Um, what I, How are identities able to represent themselves and participate in teacher education. You know, and here we are still talking about challenges um, with sexism, with homophobia, ableism, racism, you name it, we've got it. Right. And nothing, you think that schooling is normalizing? Think about teacher education. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely the norm, most normative, normalizing experience I think of anything, given the way in which cultural anxiety about the future is lodged within schooling. So we have that responsibility to open up those discourses, to ask questions about how we're going to be more inclusive in very specific ways. In Indigenous education and working with Indigenous people, with the um, calls to action out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Mm -hmm. we have some obvious Um, not just challenges, but responsibilities to think very differently about our historical connection to Indigenous people. So it's a big, new, exciting challenge, and it has to be handled in a very practical way with um, the way we're offering courses, what they're called, how people get in, how we assess them, um, how we support our teacher candidates when they get into schools, the experiences they have, because, of course, that's when it gets very difficult. And I think one of the opportunities that I would see for us as university administrators is to lead by example. Mm-hmm. It's very powerful. Um, so so one of the things that I try to do as dean is, is express my thoughts about all of those issues, mm-hmm. be really clear about where I stand. I set them as priorities for my office and for the, for the faculty. These are the things we care about. This is what we want to do. And then I follow that up by action. So our One Million Teachers Project, for example, our work with Sustema, our work, you know, all of the kinds of different projects and activities and advancement work we do, it lives that. It lives that out. And then we also, you give people in the different units to, to set their own priorities, but within those kind of 
parameters of caring and attention. So we have to lead by example, and our faculty have to lead, and our future teachers have to lead by example. And it means always questioning yourself, paying attention to things you're doing. And it's uncomfortable sometimes, and, and sometimes it's horrifying. You'll realize you've been doing something for many years that seemed fine and normal, and then someone brings it to your attention that there's an issue with yeah. what you're doing or how you're thinking. And that's happened to that's happened to me a number of times in the past few years as I've opened myself up to make those changes. Right. And it's a bit horrifying sometimes, but it's so important. Yeah. I was telling Dennis on the way here that that you know as as you think about these things, as you attend to them, as you make them a focus, then you begin to find more and more often you default to the to the equitable way of being and understanding, but it takes a lot of work, and you're never done. Right. You're never done. Well, I'm going to add to it because um, I think it's true, actually, that 10 years ago, when I interviewed to be dean at Calgary, and Alberta's considered to be, and it's not anymore, a very conservative, socially conservative province. Not. We have some of the most advanced legislation anywhere in Canada. However, there's still a feeling about it. Right. So when I went to interview, I interviewed as a completely out gay man doing research in a particular area. thought, how will that go? You know, there was some concern about it. There was actually some worry. How would I do in the community? You know, with fundraising and things like that. It all worked out fine, except I will say, it still is shocking to me that you know the the groundwork for decisions is still made in places that are not the official spaces of decision making mm -hmm. you know you know people will get together right who are part of an affinity group let's put it that way yeah and they will talk things through and you find you get to a meeting and realize wow well when did that happen right how did people all come to agreement on that and you realize you weren't there mm -hmm. you weren't invited you're not part of that group. You're an outsider. It never ends. I think it's an advantage having people in leadership roles who have lived in those liminal spaces, you know, in both identities, mm -hmm. figuring out tactically how to move into a position where you have more opportunity to lead change, right, and to restructure. And still, even there, I notice all the ways in which we can be excluded. Look, if that's true for me, you know, um, male, privileged, white, you know, uh, economically advantaged, right. educationally advantaged. If that's still true for me, imagine what it's like for many of our young people and many of our teacher candidates. I think it's important to be able to talk about that yeah. and start to notice, listen, when we teach that course that way, it um, is making the students, for example, the site of contestation, that's a real problem. When we're teaching inclusive education in this way, it's actually reproducing the problem. In Canada right now, I think our biggest issue is that we have some of the most advanced social policy in the world, right? We do, but that ha actually hasn't taken care of what I would call the mostly gone underground forms of insidious non-inclusivity that is everywhere. Right. We have to be careful. Right? We, we look south of the border, we south of our border and say, wow, you know, you know we're so much more um, progressive and evolved. Than the, and it's not true. A lot of it's gone underground. So we have to, I think, 
as leaders and teachers in schools pay attention to that and start to address it at that level. Because it pops its head up when you least expect it. Exactly. And you go, oh, it is still here. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's always at the time that you don't want it to pop up, for sure. Well, it's always there. Yeah. I think that's the issue. Let's not pretend it isn't. Yeah. Right? We have a lot of work to do. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Are you an occasional teacher looking to improve your job prospects? Are you an experienced teacher trying to reach the next pay scale? Are you interested in improving your overall teaching practice? Queen's Continuing Teacher Education has you covered. With easy-to-access online courses, you can log on to your course from anywhere you have access to the Internet. Courses offered by CTE range from special education to technological education to safe and accepting schools. Queen's CTE courses work with your schedule, have supportive, expert instructors that want to help you succeed. Registration is fast and easy with no commitment to pay until the Friday before the course starts. What are you waiting for? Visit coursesforteachers.ca for more information or to sign up today. That's coursesforteachers.ca. Welcome back to Popular Podagogy. Uh, we are joined here uh, by uh, Dr. Rebecca Luce Kapler and Dr. Dennis Samara. Uh, and before we uh, leave you today, uh, we just wanted to kind of think about this weekend, uh, which uh, again is the 50th anniversary of the Faculty of Education uh, conference. And the conference and, and our questions so far in our talk has been a little bit about reflecting on the teaching field and reflecting on the past and where we've come from. Um, and so on that note, I just wanted to see if you had any anecdotes or stories about teaching that uh, you think would be valuable to share to our listeners. Well, we, we thought that um, one of the nice things to talk about was how our friendship actually began. I mean, yes, we were in the same doctoral program together, but it turned out that we both got assigned to co-teach a course. My my first year there, I think it was your second, second, and the, the course was called EdSec 200. And Cur- it, curriculum and instruction. Curriculum and instruction. So it was kind of an um, overview of, of um, how to think about teaching and what curriculum meant. And, you know, get, not a specific curriculum, like not the math or English curriculum, but the whole idea of curriculum and what it meant to, to have that kind of guidance in schools. So Dennis and I, um, we realized that our minds were on very similar planes. We clicked immediately, and we both felt very similarly about teaching. Like it was, you know, it was like he could finish my sentences, I could finish his. So we decided to try something different with that course than what was usually done. We decided we were going to choose one text and use that text to address all of the questions about teaching and learning that we wanted to talk about in that course. And that text was John Dewey's Child in the Curriculum. And it's a tough read. And these are these are new students, right? They're, this is one of their early courses. They're just, you know... I remember started. being assigned that text in my teacher's college program and having to go through and read that. And mm-hmm. it was... It, 
It's dense. It's definitely it's dense. It's, it's, it's a read. There. That's for sure. You know, and and uh, it, it it's a struggle. And but what one of the things that happened through doing that is that we had to go through it again and again as a class and as instructors mm-hmm. and talk about how perhaps just even this one sentence, the meaning of it and the depth and how it connected to education. It was a hard course yeah. for the students, but you know, they loved it. Don't well, you think? they didn't start loving it. No. I mean, no. here's what I remember. Here's what happens. And these are university students who have read much more difficult texts before coming in mm-hmm. to teach her. They have. Mm-hmm. Not true that they that it's too difficult for them. Mm-hmm. But this is not what they expect or what they expected back then in teacher education. It was they expected everything to be practical. Right. Right? If you would just tell me how to manage the classroom or how to plan those lessons, everything will be fine. Well, that's not true. Everything won't be fine. In fact, we might be able to tell you that, but you would be merely reproducing what we already know without paying attention to the context. So that particular essay is a philosophical um, thought experiment, right, and a discussion of the relationship between who the child is, their context, and what is considered to be the curriculum, and the other things that are the curriculum. Right. Everything we talked about earlier. Right. So we did go through it. I think we required them to read it three full, complete readings addressing every single question. You know, what is classroom management? How do you think about that differently? Mm-hmm. Do you remember we wrote an article that came out of that? Yeah. It was called, I remember it now, um, with brackets around the UN, Unbecoming a Teacher. Right? <laughs> and that article is still cited. A lot. People still read it. Well, what came out of that? The purpose, and I still believe this. It's in my talk tomorrow. The purpose of teacher education should not be to normalize schooling, the identity of the teacher. It should be the opposite. It should be the opposite. That should be the place in which we are willing and able to question everything, absolutely everything, interrogate everything before anyone ever walks in the classroom. You know, to, to meet young children and young learners. So that's uh, that's how we kind of bonded on an intellectual level. And I think at the end of that one, Rebecca, I remember those students. I have never had more interesting yeah. reviews and comments from students. You know, most of them said it was difficult. It challenged their thinking. But I would say, in retrospect, my rem- my memory of it is the majority of them felt that they were in a better place intellectually they could think quite differently right about you know what it meant to be a teacher and to teach and what when i was thinking about that course thinking back on it what i realized is that um most of our future research that went from that place and our practices in teaching really found their foundation in that one course Mm -hmm. so many so much of the literary research that dennis and i did since is based on that going back to the text reading closely responding writing about it the commonplace book Mm -hmm. we used in that practice in that course there were so many things that laid the groundwork for our future work as teacher educators and um administrators it 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 was one of those times it was just transformative i think yeah well i i think that that's something that 
we can kind of keep in mind anytime we're in a classroom, whether it's a faculty of education or whether it's uh, a classroom in, in a high school or an elementary school, is that um, when you're questioning everything and you're you're challenging the students to do something that's a little bit different, it, it's it's beneficial not only for you but also for them too because it's something that's a little bit different from that. So yeah. um, thank you for sharing that story and uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, we we know that you're both very busy and we appreciate you coming on here and mm-hmm. hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do this again. Uh, so thank you. You're welcome. Well, thank you very Thanks. much. Yeah. Yeah. That does it for another episode of Popular Podagogy. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, as well as on the CFRC and Faculty of Education website. We'll see you next time. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.